0: So they said, the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men, and who came to the young world after the sky.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 26 of the Great Old Ones Gaming Podcast. I am your host, Nate, lost in time and space, and I am
2: joined with this evening...
0: I am the man from Lang, host of the Whisper in Darkness YouTube channel. I'm
3: Innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn.
2: Hey, and I'm Nathan from uh, Arkham Horror Images of Madness on Instagram. Have you guys played any Arkham recently? I know, Vase,
1: we've been playing Edge of the Earth, but I know, man from Lang, you've been busy... Editing all those videos, which has been super nice. But what about you, Nathan? Have you been playing any Arkham recently?
2: Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, I just got together with some friends to form a small bubble. And we are going to do the Dreamlands, uh, the Dream Eaters more specifically. But we're going to do only investigators from the core box. And in the outer realm, we're going to do their parallel investigator equivalent. So ah. that should be fun. We're going to try that out soon. And then uh, I'm going to be doing MechaNations through time uh, soon as well. Nice.
1: Before we had started recording this episode, I took a quick glance over at FFG's website, and I totally forgot that that product even existed. It was like... It was announced, what, back in like August of last year or something like that? And then... Sort of just kind of fell under everyone's radar.
0: Well, I think I think that's just because of the new with even FFG not knowing when things are going to be released. It's just like it's like a product is coming, and then you just sort of wait until your store tells you it's arrived. (laughs) Because FFG can't—I don't think FFG can really say much more than that, other than that we think the product is available in some markets now which seems to be the post that they they put up yeah it kind of slunk into to the store where i usually buy my stuff one day it was just like oh it's here i'm like oh okay i guess i'll i guess i'll order a copy
1: yeah and i wonder if part of that is also just given the the nature of those multiplayer scenarios they're kind of always not the most hyped up releases in the game you know at least not compared to, like, new campaign expansions or anything like that.
3: Yeah, there's no Barkham horror. True. True.
1: Man, I need to replay Barkham. Face, we should play that again sometime.
3: Yeah, we definitely need to play it again.
0: So when you play dogs, do you guys draw as many auto fails playing the dogs as you do normally?
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. I've it's only played that scenario like twice, and I really don't remember it to be honest. Yeah, it's been a while. I don't remember it either. Yeah, man, I feel I feel bad because it's a pretty cool scenario. But you know what? One thing I certainly don't draw a lot of is elder signs, ever. Probably ever, Vase. You seem to draw all the elder signs in our games.
3: I do, and yeah, because there's been like several of our games in the last like month or month and a half where I drew like six elder signs throughout the game, but <laughs> it's always counterbalanced by your auto fails. And then there's games where you know we'll draw one elder sign the entire game, and then you still draw like a ton of auto fails. It's it's crazy, Nate. You really have horrible luck. Thank you. You you make my games far more challenging. You're welcome. You're welcome. (laughs) But
1: I was, you know, we were playing, I think it was last week's game, because you've been playing Bob through Edge of the Earth, and his Elder Sign ability reminds me a lot of Jenny's Elder Sign ability. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's sort of interesting how Elder Sign ability's design has changed and how little it hasn't at the same time over the course of this game
3: I agree it's super surprising some of them are like wow that's really neat and then you get Bob <laughs> like you said very pretty much Jenny just get a bonus to your to your skill check equal to whatever like Jenny is equal to her resources and Bob is equal to the number of items in play so you get a huge bonus but for Bob, I don't know, I don't think most people build Bob with the Succeed by X mechanic. Like, for Jenny, I feel like it could work a little bit better, because she, there are builds for Jenny with the Succeed by X mechanics. But even though Bob has access to the Rogue class, I just haven't seen that many Bob decks play the Succeed by X theme. So his Elder Sign... I feel like it's even less impactful than Jenny. Like Jenny's, I think was was thought out with that in mind, with the succeed by X. Because when she came out, the game was still fairly new, and that was in Dunwich, kind of like the big rogue thing to do was succeed by X.
1: Mm.
3: So mm. I I feel like hers they added because of that. Um, so it made sense. Now in hindsight, it's not you know it's not as impactful because very few people play that type of deck now.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting to, like, compare that Elder Sign kind of static ability versus somebody like Preston, who can spend resources to make the test automatically successful. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, like, that kind of ebb and flow. Or even someone like Rex, who, right? Rex had an Elder Sign ability that he could, like, have it automatically fail to draw cards. Oh, yeah. It's been a long time since I've played Rex.
3: But... Yeah, I even forgot about Rex, actually. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel like a lot of the community has, like, oh, yeah, that guy's overpowered, and they just kind of, like, shoved him in the back of the binder and haven't played him in five years.
0: I would rather have Bob's Elder Sign ability than Finn's. Finn has to have one of the the worst Elder Sign abilities, plus one for each exhausted enemy in play. It's terrible. Oh, yeah, that was <laughs> terrible. That's That's rough. I mean, if you succeed by more, more two or more, you get to discover a clue. But
1: man, that plus one for each exhausted enemy is rough. It makes you wonder, like how much, like how much design time do you think they spend on elder sign abilities? And like, I feel like by and large, most people don't even really consider them a part of an investigator. At least, like as far as considering playing the investigator.
3: Hmm, I don't know though. For me, for me, it makes a big big difference I mean it it's not the ultimate deciding factor in playing an investigator but I think I do consider the elder sign quite a bit
2: well hold on what is the ultimate deciding factor for you is it no line? if
3: it's um if it's a Mexican priest or, <laughs> uh, or a botanist hey is there an exit in your room that you're in base um it, through the second story window that yeah. works <laughs> Peace. Oh <my> God. <laughs> but I think I think like some of the elder signs are really make a character, for example, Matteo, right? Since you guys brought him up. Mateo has a really awesome elder sign and I think it's fitting for him. And with Mateo and the Mystic Card pool, you can kind of manipulate a little bit so that you can make it happen more frequently. Between pulling more tokens using Bless or between using cards like Seal of the Elder Sign, you know, that'll automatically give them an automatic Elder Sign. So you can kind of ensure that you at least pull one or two in a game for someone like Mateo. Same with Carolyn. Carolyn can can use a few Mystic cards. I don't think, I can't remember, I don't think she can use Seal of the Elder Sign, but um, she... She can also really benefit from from her Elder Sign because of that healing mechanic. but Because she has such a large card pool that she can access, she can actually also use a lot of the Bless mechanics to pull more tokens and ensure that she pulls the Elder Sign a little bit more throughout, throughout a scenario. So some investigators, I feel like you can kind of factor that into their actual overall abilities and strengths. But there are others where or a majority of the investigators you probably can't.
0: Well, I think that's just that has more to do with the Mystic Card pool than than Elder signs themselves. I mean Mystic the Mystic Card Pool gives you much more chaos token manipulation and and I think if you wanted to to try to build around an an elder sign, that's pretty much the way you have to do it. I know when I've done my deck tech episodes in the past where i've break down an investigator and look at their stat line and their special abilities and the elder sign i tend to spend very little time talking about the elder sign because it's just like you never know when it's going to happen you never know if it's going to be beneficial besides you know drawing an elder sign itself you don't know whether you're going to be able to trigger it for me it's it's nice to have when it happens, but, you know, there's no guarantee you're ever going to see it. So,
2: You know, that does make me think about how I choose an investigator. I don't think I ever look at the Elder Sign ability, and I don't often look at the stat line. I just kind of think about which flavor I want to play with, like what kind of experience I want to have with the story, which is the most inefficient, less techie way to make a deck. But that's exactly what I do.
3: I think it just really depends on the investigator. I think you bring up a point and from about the Mystic card pool, but not every Mystic has a great Elder Sign ability. So, in a way, you do have to factor that in into how you build the deck if you're going to be trying to do deck manipulation, that kind of thing. But I think Nate, when Nate asks about like the evolving Elder Sign abilities, I do think that some of them have gotten far more interesting. Bob is just a head-scratcher. I'm not quite sure what they intended maybe they designed him, you know, way before uh, this set came out who I am not quite sure but he's he's the only kind of outlier of the recent investigators that I can think of but I I feel like the other ones are have definitely gotten far more interesting um than just a bonus or you know draw a card or something like that
1: a lot of investigators like Luke or Lily they they sort of have like this ability that interacts with either their their signature asset or or some other, like, thing that they're doing, whether it's, like, Rita with her, her Elder Sign allows her to, like, use her reaction ability multiple times. So, yeah, it's sort of interesting how they they kind of pick and choose these effects for certain investigators. And And I don't know if I – I definitely consider the Elder Sign ability, but – I don't know how often it's like tips me over the edge of one investigator over another.
0: I would say for me, it's it's never a consideration. I'll play pretty much any investigator
1: regardless of what they're
0: – I wouldn't look at an Elder Sign Ability and go, no, I'm not playing this investigator.
1: Yeah, I'm sure part of that is by design too, right? Like you wouldn't want an investigator to pull the, the one good special token out of the bag and have it be like, oh. Well this sucks. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's interesting because I feel especially now they've become much more comfortable with adding new tokens into the bag. Um, we've seen bless and curse tokens, we saw the the keys in oh gosh, whatever whatever that scenario is, for the greater good. For the greater good. <laughs> You know, so they've they've become more comfortable with designing specific tokens for campaigns, and I think Innsmith sort of set the the precedent for having you know new cycles of tokens every every cycle. So I'm curious if they'll they'll keep doing this, and what you guys think about adding new tokens to the bag.
3: I think that adding new tokens, the bless and curse tokens, was a fantastic mechanic. Uh, the frost tokens are just a, a tool, I guess, for the encounter deck. So, you know, it's not something that player cards are manipulating, really, unless they're campaigns, sp- at least that I've seen. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, so I, I'm glad they've kept the frost tokens to a minimum in terms of that. You know, they, they do play a part in the campaign, but they're not, like, part of the player card pool. So I'm glad that they kind of stayed away from that because even though the blessing curse tokens were a great idea, I think that if they start doing that too much, like adding too many types of cards that add different types of tokens, it can overcomplicate the game. And especially for newer, my concern always is the newer players, you know? For newer players, they sit down at a table with more experienced players and then they're like, wait a minute, what does that token do? Now what does that one do? What does this one do? And it's like really gonna slow the game down for people if they start adding that kind of complexity to something as that should be as smooth as just pulling a token from the from the uh, from the bag
1: yeah frost tokens are interesting too because the campaign gives you multiple ways of either adding them or ignoring them from the bag or when you pull them and blessed and curse was sort of a completely different beast right because that's like you were saying face that That was something that you directly involved yourself with as a player, but the frost tokens are sort of like not really a punishment, but the sort of a consequence of like choices you make throughout the campaign. So it's sort of similar to like doubt and conviction or Yig's Fury or, or things that we've seen in the past, but it has a much more like it has a much more visceral impact from scenario to scenario, I think. Versus those other mechanics, where it's sort of like you just kind of write something down in the campaign log, and then if you you know have a certain number, then this happens. But the the frost tokens is interesting because it's like a mechanic that you can sort of ignore entirely if you really want to.
3: Without spoiling anything, you, a lot of times when the frost tokens are are um, introduced or. Something happens where another frost token may be added or whatever. A lot of times you're given the option. Do you want to add the frost token or do something else, you know? Or do you want to remove a frost token or get some other benefit, you know? And so it's it's almost like the encounter deck is using the frost tokens as a currency to, to tempt you one way or another, you know?
2: Yeah, it makes it more dynamic.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I like how they did it with the frost token. I'm glad they didn't go the same route as Bless and Curse. Do, do and you remember
2: it, what Maxine said was her favorite thing she's done with Arkham?
3: I don't remember. Did sorry, she say "blessed"? Sorry to and-
2: interrupt. She said "blessed and cursed" interaction. Yeah. So maybe that'll make a resurgence because I I want to say, and I could be wrong, that at some point Nate or Man from Lang said that they wanted to see that kind of expounded or more done with it to kind of fully realize it. But I mean. At the end of the day, it's given people options. And and I I like what you say about adding, like, an encounter tempting aspect where you can take it or leave it, but it adds that extra level.
3: Yeah, it it gives you, like, more interaction with the encounter deck sometimes, which is pretty cool.
2: So I wonder if they're going to continue. Well, I want to say they will go with more of the same, but at the same time, it's been shown time and time again they like to push the boundaries, so. We will see what they do next with the uh, special tokens.
3: Yeah, I hope hope you're right. I hope they do bring them back because I agree with you. I think, and I agree with Maxine, one of the best things that she's done with Arkham is the Blessed Curse. I, I think the community overall overwhelmingly agrees that the Blessed Tokens were a huge hit. Like, they were... They were something I'm not even sure that Maxine or the other designers really expected to be so well received by the community. But I think generally uh, and overwhelmingly, the players of Arkham really love the Bless curse uh, tokens. And even though Maxine had said that she didn't necessarily want to explore that again, I do hope that the feedback on them has been so positive that she at least reconsiders.
0: Uh, I wholly expect them to to revisit Bless curse at at some point down the road probably sooner than later and have you know a a large expansion to to flesh it out with and i think that will be that will be good and i i look forward to that i i do kind of wish they would play around with the tokens a little more i think there's some design space there because i find for the most part the the skull tablet and cultist tokens are pretty interchangeable. I know that they've sort of tried to use the tokens to sort of symbolize aspects of the campaign. For example, during the Forgotten Age, you know, the 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 tablets represent one side and the the elder things represent the other and you sort of add and subtract tokens based on sort of which side you're working with and but in the end it just to me it's just like well one is as good as the other it doesn't really affect the game all that much maybe i haven't looked at the you know their their values or their effects closely enough but it just seems like it doesn't matter whether i've got all tablets or all elder things or all cultists like it doesn't seem to make much of a difference that way so i kind of like to see them do that i think they did something similar in in the path to carcosa as well whereas if you were sort of on the doubt path you'd have more more of one kind of token than the other but i don't think it really affected the game that much and i think they did that in 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 the dream eaters as well where i mean you right off the bat you dump a ton of skull tokens into the bag but then after that it's sort of like I think it depends on whether you're getting help or not. The token mix changes, but that always sort of just falls flat for me because they all just—they're all bad. So it doesn't really matter which way you go. So maybe, maybe frost tokens are the evolution of that, where it's like, okay, now we have a a currency here that that you can actually manipulate, and you can see the results of it more more easily than say, oh, I have more cultists than tablets. What's the difference? Well, actually, there's no difference. You know, doesn't matter whether you have more of one or the other. But with frost tokens, it's quite apparent. Oh, I have X frost tokens in the bag. That's I'm going to see an impact from that where I don't think you see that with the other sort of token mixes.
1: Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point about the other special tokens and I I think I share your opinion in that oftentimes you're you're sort of making the bag pointless anyway, because you're you're taking most of your important tests at such a range where only the auto fail can fail you. And the frost token is a nice dynamic in that because, you know, as you add more you have that chance of drawing that second one. And that's a really interesting way of kind of combating that uh that kind of gaming of the bag in a way.
0: Yeah, and they tried to do that with curse tokens as well, where that, that mixes it up, but then, of course, immediately gave you ways to mitigate the curse tokens. So I don't know if I would be ever play a deck that didn't have some way of mitigating the curse tokens. So it's going to be very rare that I draw one and I'm not prepared to deal with it in some way, where it sounds like the curse token, or the, sorry, the frost tokens are... Um, break with that that tradition
1: yeah they they seem to i haven't we haven't played the full campaign so i'm not sure how nasty it can get but it definitely makes the campaign a lot harder and as you as you increase the difficulty it adds more frost tokens to the start of the campaign so clearly the designers feel like having more frost tokens makes the back harder as well We've also seen sort of these other other accessories as well with keys, and now we have these rune tokens. And if part of me always feels like these types of things harken back to Arkham's board game roots more than they do kind of a card games. What do you guys think?
3: I do think it's it's kind of like a little nod to its board game roots. Um, I'm not a fan of the key thing, you know, especially in uh, in Smith. I don't hate it, but i I'd, I'd rather do without it. To be honest,
0: I think it adds a level of randomness to the game that i that I don't really like. I, I think it's probably easier in multiplayer where you've got more people who are able to reveal the keys. But I find in solo that, man, I mean when I played Devil Reef and it's like okay I need to get this key and that key to match up with this location but that key isn't here it's somewhere else and I've got to go find it and come back and it just and then I played the scenario again and it just happened the keys matched up you know I got lucky the keys were fairly close by I was able to you know match them up and and stuff like that so I think it's just it creates a really a, a lot more swingy scenario than I like
1: yeah I I think with keys I'm I tend to agree with you man from laying in that aspect is I find that once you start introducing more elements of randomness that the player doesn't really have much control over it just makes the scenarios less enjoyable because you feel sort of you feel like you're at the whim of wherever the keys happen to spawn and how well you do versus like how well you actually played the scenario i think um another example of that too is the scenario before devil reef and into deep where you know depending on what location is the hideout you get a certain key and then you could even spawn that like well after you've already visited that location so then you end up having to like go back several locations just to get it Uh, it's just kind of a mess and and I don't know how much I like those sorts of things when they've done I feel they've done that kind of key mechanic better in previous scenarios like for the, for the greater good.
0: But I think you can still end up getting locked out in that one can't you if the keys don't come up in the right order.
1: You you can yeah and that's actually happened to me and it's another reason I don't very much like those sorts of design things like they've they've had to patch out things like that in the past too it reminds me sort of of the uh the bug that was in the witching hour when that scenario was first released was that it was possible to not obtain enough clues just given a random slot assortment of the locations
3: oh yeah I remember that yeah yeah that was a big thing
1: yeah so they've faq'd that since that point but you know I, I feel like i think they're they're hard to balance and they can kind of bite a designer in the ass sometimes for that for those
2: reasons well i mean you're looking at two things right you're looking at if it had no random no randomness at all it would cut down on the replayability right and if it had a lot of randomness, well, the replayability is through the roof. But then the quality control, like what you said with the witching hour, uh, or like what you talked about with the keys, to go, doing solo mode, man for lying, you've got to try and ride that rail right in the middle. And, I mean, you can only do so much with the pool of testers you have, and you hope you get it right. But And even if even if you do get the occasional person that gets locked out or can't do something, if a majority of people are getting through and it's exciting and replayable, I mean, I, I guess they count that as a win.
0: I think with the keys, what they could have... I don't know if this would have worked, but it occurred to me when I played, say, Devil Reef or, or those scenarios in the Innsmouth Conspiracy where the keys are placed, the keys themselves are, are completely random. So you don't know the... Like, you know you need a red key, but you have no idea where the red key is. And I was thinking, well, maybe if they put the key... At the beginning of those types of scenarios, the keys were were somehow visible. So you knew, okay, I need a red key. Oh, the red key is over at this location, this game. next Next game I play, oh, it's over at this other location. But I still know where the red key is, so I can still progress the story. I thought that might be, a I don't know how easily or difficult that would be able to do, but at least it would cut, you know, you could still have sort of keys randomly placed on the map, but at least the color wouldn't be random as well. And you'd be like, well, I have no idea.
2: the one one caveat is adding an ability that helps you flip the keys or, or, you know, look at them here and there because you shouldn't be omniscient, right? You shouldn't be able to be like, I know where everything is, but having cool things where you could find out. Fairly quickly through an action or or event would make perfect yeah. sense,
3: and they've done that before, where the, where you could spend a clue to flip. So it's like in the in the Italy scenario and in, in Carnival of Horrors, you could spend a clue to flip any. I believe at any location, any of the revelers. If I'm correct on that. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a, while. It's
1: been a long time since I played that one,
3: I, but I, I but believe I that wasn't. Yeah, so you
0: could flip a reveler yeah, by, from anywhere.
3: By, by
0: doing something.
3: So there's precedent cuz that that scenario came out way early in the game, so there's precedent for it, you know? They could have done that. But I think um, when you mentioned Nathan uh, adding randomness and replayability, I think there's a limit to that. I think once you hit a certain point of randomness, it doesn't adding more randomness does not increase replayability necessarily i think when things start to become too random they don't necessarily become i don't want to use like a mean word here but no,
2: i know what you're saying can i talk to you back for a second <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> no um, but, but that you, was what i said right it's that balance of either not enough and having to be static and boring or having too much and having to be chaotic
3: yeah yeah but but I, what i'm saying is just because you're adding more randomness doesn't mean that you're adding more replayability. There's a, there's a point where that limit is reached.
0: Like when I, play, when I play Devil Reef, and I keep coming back to that one because I, I feel like it's the most egregious offender, but it, uh, like I was thinking, like, if I had perfect knowledge of this scenario, like everything was face up on the table, would this scenario still be challenging? And I think it would be. It may not be as replayable, but I think the scenario itself would have still been challenging for me to to defeat.
2: So do you just fac it or do you just
0: No, no. I, I I still play it the you know, I've I've had I've played it a couple times. I had one game where I just got completely shut down and couldn't do anything. And one game where I where everything went smoothly. But the the thing that bothers me is that now if I play the Insmiths Conspiracy campaign, I know I have this one scenario stuck in the middle where it's going to be like, who knows what's going to happen. I could have a good game. I could, or I could just, the keys could be in places that I don't go to.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about your possible fix for that scenario. I was sort of on the same lines, is that rather than having like the keys revealed face up, have the keys spawn at specific locations. Maybe not like make all the locations random but you make like each cluster of locations random so that you don't know like where one island is versus the other but you know at this set island this the red key is at that island and i need to bring it to this other island or or something along those lines But I guess by the same token, you know, we've been kind of talking about, you know, extra tokens and things on the board and elder sign abilities and uh, uh, Arkham has become a pretty complex game as you know, we've gone through seven cycles at this point. And what do you guys think about all this additional complexity being added to
3: the game? Nathan
2: Dan, I was literally about to unmute and say you. God damn. <laughs> I know you were. <laughs> it's like you're watching me, and I can see you across yeah. the way. Um, I mean, I hate to say it, my knee-jerk answer, and I don't know if everybody feels the same, is more is more, and I just want content because I really enjoy the game. You know, that said, uh, there comes a time, I think, in any LCG or any game that continues to develop, whether it be Magic or whatever, where it's kind of fun to step back and do the basics. You know, to step back to the Knight of the Zealot and run through that again to, to to go through Path to Carcosa and not play with the entire pool of cards. And then there's also times where you kind of want to flex and you want to try out some of the overpower cards and you want to try out some of the new mechanics. So, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit on both sides. But I in general, I do like having new, new content and I do enjoy new ways they can pull us because you never know if the next campaign, if the next standalone with its flavor, with its map, with its mechanic will be the thing that just absolutely sings for you. I've talked to people in the community that absolutely love edge of the earth. That is their favorite campaign. They, it makes them so happy and they've been replaying it a couple of times through that wouldn't have been the case if we had this conversation before it and we were like, You know, is it too much? Have they, you know, adding bags, adding, uh, pardon me, adding Blessed Curse tokens? Are they going to add more tokens? Are they going to add anything else? So I don't know. I mean, I definitely feel like with the creative energies uh, with MJ and Jeremy and uh, Duke, I believe, Uh, one of the the newer people, the, the crew doing a great job. You gotta, you remember? Cause it's the name of, did. The, of the. I I told Maxine. Yeah. I said you need to make sure that Duke gets a dog named Rex. Or, or whatever. Well, is. I
3: told when we interviewed them. I remember I told them he got sacrificed many or times. Or Pete? No, I apologize. <laughs> Not Rex. I don't know where
2: that came from. Pete. I said he needs yeah. a dog named Pete. Uh, no, just a lot of great possibilities, and uh, I mean, yeah, it's kind of getting a little bloated here and there, but I would much rather have that.
0: I don't really have an issue with what they've... I don't think the game has gotten that much more complex, to be honest. I mean, they did add Bless and Curse, but that's something the player has control over. For the most part, there are very few scenarios that add Bless and Curse tokens. So that's not really an issue. The The bag, you know, there are different tokens going into the bag, but, you know, the the concept of the Chaos bag hasn't changed really it's, you know maybe a few different tokens the scenarios i mean you're getting a different you're getting a different map every every game but that happens from the core set on so that really hasn't changed so i don't think they've added a whole lot of overhead to the game
1: yeah i think the designers have done a good job of designing horizontally if that makes sense rather than like adding a bunch of new mechanics and things on top of the existing game, they've found creative ways of sort of taking existing things and putting a slight tweak on them and making it interesting. You know, like, Frost Tokens is a good example, and Bless and Curse Tokens are also a good example. But, I mean, even just, like, certain scenario mechanics that have now become, like, evergreen throughout the game's design, like Alert, for instance, right? Like, that was that was not a thing until it... Um, forgotten age until forgotten age and now now it's sort of ubiquitous throughout the rest of the game
3: it was a good mechanic um here here's my thoughts on it i think i think it's a complex question because the game has become more complex in certain ways and it hasn't in other ways i agree with man from lang in the fact that they haven't added complexity in terms of The characters Um, themselves—they've done a really good job with releasing new investigators that are unique and fresh, but not stacking on top of older investigators in terms of you know having way more complex abilities. Um, I think there's a few that are a little more complex, you know, Um, but for the most part, like a couple of the mystics especially, but for the most part, they've they've been adding fresh new investigators and not. Made it more complex in terms of that, so I think that's one of the things that kills a lot of like role playing games, like Pathfinder and D and D three point five edition. Like, as as a lot more options became available, it became too bloated and too overwhelming for people that they had to start over. In this game, they haven't had to do that, luckily, but only because they've been careful about it. Because they definitely can cross that line if they're not careful. So, I'm glad they haven't crossed it just by its very nature, the growing card pool has made deck building a little bit more overwhelming and complex um, because there are certain mechanics that work well with each other and you have to kind of know that. And you only really learn it through experience or through talking to people in the community that, Hey, these cards work well, with these type of cards, you know, like we were just talking about the succeed by two or more mechanic. That was kind of like an initial thing that all rogues did, but they've they've, shied, they've moved away from that, but that's kind of slightly made a comeback with a couple of recent uh, releases. so you know now now you have other cards that kind of synergize with that strategy and it's a viable strategy now more than it was before. So they they have added complexity in deck building and not everyone who plays this game likes to deck build. So thank goodness for Arkham DB where you could just be like, let me I like this investigator, let me see what decks are available, click on it. Cool, here's the cards I need. And someone even wrote out an article giving you play by play what your strategy is playing this deck, how to how to drive with this deck.
2: That they should make another run of investigators like they did. Yeah,
3: yeah. So um but but I feel like like it's it's been helped because of Arkham D B and the community. You know what I mean? Keeping the complexity down because of because there are a certain group of players who just don't like the deck-building aspect of the game, they just want to play. So, okay, that said, they have added complexity to some of the other aspect of the game, which is the encounter deck and scenarios. I do think they've gotten more complex. If you look back at, you know, some of the early Dunwich scenarios, they're pretty straightforward for the most part, you know? But you look at, uh, you know, especially Innsmouth has several complex ones where you're re- rebuilding maps and undoing maps and rebuilding maps that kind of complexity is more like tedium than than anything else but it's still more complexity you know that takes away from the actual playing of the game and then there are they've dialed it back so i feel like they've they've realized in some scenarios where they've crossed that a little bit too far and so they start dialing it back in future scenarios but it doesn't change the fact that some of them have been progressively getting more complex like they every campaign has a scenario that kind of toes that line or pushes that line further a little bit, you know? And I feel like they got feedback from uh, the Haunted Mechanic and especially um, that campaign, the uh, the Circle Undone. That was uh, a little bit, I think, too much. I think there they, they maybe passed that line a little too far in terms of the encounter deck complexity because triggers upon triggers upon triggers, you're... <laughs> Your threat area is full of all these cards, and one triggers at this point in the in the round, and this one triggers at that point, and then if that one triggers, then it triggers another one, and that is where the complexity was starting to get a little bit too much, and I'm glad they did dial that back. And sorry, that was a really ranty and long mm. answer to your question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think, kind of touching on your point, maybe it's not so much that like the game as a whole has become com- more complex, but that... You know, sort of by design, like each of the preceding scenarios sort of has its own quirk to it or its own gimmick to it. And that kind of by design adds a layer of complexity to the scenarios. And, you know, once we're, oh, goodness, we're, what, 56 plus scenarios in at this point. You know, so it's like you kind of have to remember essentially like 56 variations of the game. One scenario has barriers, another scenario has keys, another scenario... Yeah, has, you, you double that with fan maids, too, which I have all Yeah, of. you know, so... Or even, like, things like, like you were saying, like, all the, the hexes in Circle Undone, or even just the the horror tokens in Curtain Call, like, remembering what those do and oh, what yeah. test you have to make. And, you know, there can be a lot of things, like, on the board as you play a scenario. It can be difficult to kind of keep track of all of those things so yeah maybe it's not so much that the game itself has become more complex but that scenarios have become a lot more involved
3: yeah i think that you've summarized my long 20 minute answer (laughs) pretty pretty properly there
1: yeah and i guess it's it's interesting because it kind of leads to another point that i was curious what you guys think about it and that's the overall sense of power creep in the game. You know, I feel like when I go back to play, especially Dunwich and Carcosa, nowadays with, you know, all of the cards that we have available to us now is that those scenarios are much more easy to trivialize with certain player cards if you really know what you're doing. And, you know, now you're playing Dunwich on hard or you're playing Dunwich on expert, because the you know the player cards just either give you so many much you know they give you six to eight skill icons nowadays or you know or you just are you're able to move around the map so now you have so many more actions that you know the scenarios didn't originally intend for you to have.
3: Bad down the hatches, everybody. <laughs> there we go. I used to think that it was uh, that that it was making it too easy, but now I I've kind of changed my mind on it i i kind of like the fact that dunwich and you know the earlier campaigns feel trivialized when you do have a full card pool but when you're a new player and you buy dunwich it still feels challenging you know it's only when you actually have access to all these new things that it starts to become trivialized and that i think that's fine i used to not think so but i do think so now
1: Hmm. yeah i can kind of see where you're coming from right like it's sort of a rite of passage in a way where you, you play through Dunwich and you struggle with it, you know, with your initial core plus Dunwich cards. And then you sort of play through the campaigns in order and you sort of build up your rapport as an investigator. I, I can see where you're coming from.
0: I don't know. I I don't know if the, the older scenarios have – I mean maybe they've gotten easier – I, I mean we do have a lot more tools at our disposal nowadays so I don't necessarily know if if it's all if you can chalk it all up to power creep. I mean obviously there has been some, especially in the skill department if you compare the the skills in the core set to the even the latest batch of skills that we got uh, granted they do cost one XP but the number of skill icons that you're getting is just... Over the top compared to anything in the past, and so clearly there are cards that have been pushed, and but I think it's it may just be more of a case that we have cards that do things that aren't necessarily overpowered, but but in their own right, but they just help with those uh, deal with those scenarios a lot easier. And I think we saw that almost immediately, right? Like when you sit down to play Dunwich and you get hit by Beyond the Veil for the first time and you're like, oh dear, like unless I finish this scenario quickly, I am going to die. And within the very next cycle, they released Quantum Flux, which essentially gives you a tool to basically nullify beyond uh, beyond the veil whenever you want i think we've just gotten more tools along the way and and that you know deals with some of the some of the problems that we were having in those in those early scenarios
1: yeah and surely part of that is by design i i do remember maxine mentioning that they they definitely intentionally do that that they put cards in the following cycle that helps you with the previous one. So, yeah, I I think I sort of sit on the fence as far as power group goes. Like, I definitely think there are certainly player cards that wouldn't have been printed in the days of the core set, but just sort of given the way that the game is now, they're more in line with where the game is at. But another... Sort of similar subject as well. It's just, are the scenarios more difficult? Is there scenario creep as well? Or do you do you think that the scenarios sort of maintain a base level of difficulty? Yeah,
0: uh, I don't think the scenarios have gotten that much more difficult. I mean, if you put the whole randomness aspect aside in, in some of the scenarios. Like when I played through Innsmouth, I didn't feel like I was it was any more difficult than, than what I had experienced before. Like I found when Curtain Call was released, man, I found Curtain Call to be very, very difficult. And I still struggle to beat that scenario easily. You know, it's, it's very tricky to the timing on that one is very, can be very difficult to, to manage sometimes. And I still find it even with all the cards at my disposal, tough to to get a good result out of that one without walking away with with a trauma but i never really felt like when i played the insma stuff that okay i didn't feel very difficult Uh, i think the beginning of dream eaters you know the beyond the gates of sleep it's not a very difficult scenario i mean you walk down the stairs investigate a few locations and deal with some enemies like it's not there's not a whole lot of fancy tricks to it and while um the search for kadath same sort of thing you know while it does have a lot of tedium as you're tearing down and setting up locations the, the the mechanics of it of those locations themselves is pretty straightforward it's just like investigate okay is there clues here no okay flip location over read a bit of text, carry on. So I wouldn't say it's it's gotten, at least I would, you know, most of the scenarios don't feel that much harder to me. The The scenarios I find hard as a solo player are, are definitely the ones where the, the randomness is just jacked up. Or scenarios like um, Union and Disillusion where it's just like, we expect you to pass five very difficult skill tests. And those are scenarios I find hard, but those are scenarios where it's there's often a random element or something that just isn't geared towards solo play particularly. It's not designed well for solo play, I should say.
1: Part of me wants to agree with you in that I, I do think that they've done a good job of maintaining difficulty without the scenarios feeling too hard. And maybe my perspective is painted a bit because I, I am a veteran player and I have an entire card pool, so I can't really speak on like how it is to like pick up a more recent campaign with just a core set. But I have to imagine that it would be pretty difficult to to build a deck for Insmith with just the Innsmouth card pool or build a circle or build a deck for circle and done with just circle and done in a corset. And I know that it's certainly been done and, you know, friend of the show, JP has done that. You know, he's made a whole series out of it on his YouTube channel, but I got to imagine that that playing those campaigns blind with a limited card pool versus playing those campaigns blind with a, with a totally souped up, card pool is a totally different experience
0: yeah well i think that's i think the problem that experienced players face is that i often see you know you you look at any of the forms and i saw one just today you know there was some somebody on i believe it was reddit talking about the forgotten age campaign and talking about how they were they were just getting completely crushed by I think they were playing on easy and they were getting crushed and they were like, is this campaign too hard or is our decks crappy? Like what is going on here? Why are we having such a rough time? And, and I've seen other playthroughs of that campaign also on easy blind playthroughs where the group just got absolutely annihilated. And, um, but it's hard to say like, I, the one group I watched, yeah, they were—they seemed to have a lot of the new cards, so they weren't playing with a, a core set. And say Forgotten Age, they were playing cards from other cycles. So, and again, without being able to sort of look at the decks and say, okay, well, here's your problem or something like that, it's—it's. It's, I always find it really tough to say, like whether. Like, I never found, when I played, I remember playing Forgotten Age for the first time, and I think I had a really good run through um, Untamed Wilds the first time. I did pretty well. I think I got roughed up in Doom of Etsley a little bit, but that's to be expected. Threads was okay. Boundary Beyond was tough. But I think I made it to the end of the campaign and ended up losing, but... So I don't know. I I have actually I haven't tried to play through, through many of the campaigns with just a core set and, uh, and the cards that were available, you know, in that campaign setting alone. It'd be an interesting experiment to try. Yeah,
1: hey, just ask JP. He would he would be a good uh, source of information for you on that regard.
0: Yeah, I did play the Witching Hour with, uh, with. The core set and cards that were from the circle undone and i did fine
1: yeah i i feel like the the two opening scenarios at least for like the first six campaigns are among the better designed scenarios of all of the game in general i think part of it is just they want to sell the campaign and you know they probably spend a lot of time on those on those scenarios in particular but I also think that part of it is just, you know, they also have to kind of consider the design constraints when they create those scenarios. Is that they have to consider that players will only have a core set when they buy this this box. So it's it's an interesting interesting question. Like, if you want to present more challenge, what's a better way of doing it? Is it is it to increase the difficulty or is it to limit your card pool?
0: Well, I think it, yeah. I guess it, I just go back to what you've sort of said about your playgroup, Nate, and how, you know, you play with friends who like to build their own decks and struggle to build good Arkham decks. And I don't know whether a lot of players are experiencing that, whether, you know, I think it's pretty clear that if, if somebody handed me, say, the core set and Insmith and said, okay, you're going to play through this with the Roland Banks starter deck. I think you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> I don't think it's going to end particularly well. And I would be very comfortable knowing what's in that deck to be able to say, okay, I'm going to change this deck in certain ways to make it more viable. And I don't know if... If you've just picked up the core set and Insmith, whether you're really in a good spot to be able to, to make those decisions, that's something you're gonna have to you're gonna have to play the deck a bunch and get, okay, well, I don't need research librarian in this deck. Why is this here? You know, take it out, take out medical text, take out all these cards, you know, refocus the deck. But until you've got experience, I think it's hard to make those... Like, you certainly can't do it blind. I mean, you don't know which cards are good and which cards are bad until you've had some experience. Now you've got me wanting to go and just try and see how well I would do in Innsmouth if I just had the core set, and, or if I had to play, like, a a starter deck.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, at least back then, right, like... If you were to play those two opening scenarios, you literally only had the core box and that that box, right? Or as nowadays, if you buy the revised corset and Edge of the Earth, now you have a pretty decent sized card pool that you can build decks with. But, you know, when you were just buying a deluxe expansion and the corset, that was a much more limited card pool.
0: Yeah, you were only getting, what is it? Eight cards, maybe
1: something like that. Yeah, it's like eight or ten.
0: But when I did that for for um, the Witching Hour, I found that you know I, I played a Wendy deck that somebody had built on uh, Arkham DB, and they said straight up, you know, I'm I've built this with cards in the core set and cards from the Circle Undone cycle, and I looked at it and I made a couple of tweaks to it um, to uh, to make it a little. Uh, more to my liking but i found the deck to be quite effective um, with those cards i don't know how many cards i used from you know that weren't in the deluxe box i think there were some but but i tend to treat you know a lot of cards as icons anyway
1: Mm. yeah so you just kind of need a critical mass of icons in order to do well
0: yeah it's it's more like do i have enough icons to pass skill tests it's not necessary. like you do need a weapon and you do need some way to discover clues. But beyond that, I find a lot of the cards are just like, well, this is icons at this point. And as long as I, as long as I've got icons, then I can pass skill tests.
1: Yeah. And they've, they've done a good job of designing the each set's card pool sort of with that in mind. You know, I, I was sort of complaining about it in our review of the edge of the earth cards is that, the mystics always get this trifecta of spells. They get something to investigate with, something to fight with, and something to evade with. And you know, I th- I think Matt brought up a good point is that they're they're sort of forced to do that in a way, given the fact that they can't assume that every player owns, you know, whatever cycle had Bright of Seeking, whatever cycle had all all those other spells in it. So Yeah, it's 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 an interesting conundrum that they find themselves in, but I I do think they do a really quite a good job of making the scenarios difficult but not unmanageable with a limited card pool.
0: Yeah, I'd agree. I think they're the they've done very well on on scenario design. I mean, my biggest beef is often more with the multiplayer solo balance than than the difficulty of the
1: scenarios themselves. Mm. Yeah, because that ends up being a much different issue.
0: Yeah, like if you look at a scenario that I would consider tough would be say boundary beyond from the forgotten age, which I think I've I've played both in multiplayer and solo and done badly at both. And I think that is a le- the the original anyway is a legitimately difficult scenario to beat whether you're playing solo or multiplayer.
1: Versus something like Union and Disillusion.
0: Yeah. Where I have played, I have also played that in multiplayer and solo. And in solo, I've beaten it solo, but I had to build a very specific deck to do it. And if I just take any deck, I will resign turn one and not play it because there's no point. I have no way of really passing five, you know very difficult skill tests reasonably but when i played it multiplayer it was much you know i didn't find it any more difficult than any other scenario in the
3: game yeah no i i completely agree i mean it's it's kind of um an interesting experiment i'm glad jp's kind of tackling the the core set only with the particular expansion thing and i i agree with you man from like there are some scenarios that're still really challenging despite the added card pool. So I I think they've done a good job of keeping the the power creep down in terms of you know making things trivial. I don't think any any particular scenario other than the gathering is trivial <laughs> by any by any stretch. Mm,
1: yeah, that that's a good point you make, you know, like at the end of the day all the scenarios definitely still feel difficult. I mean I even remember recently playing Midnight Masks and still kind of struggling with that scenario, because it still asks you to do quite a bit, especially as a solo player. You know, defeating multiple enemies, running around a pretty large map, gathering multiple clues. It can be pretty challenging, even just for, for an experienced player. But it's all interesting to kind of harken back to, because you don't really get to experience that as a veteran player often. 'Cause you're sort of you're sort of caught in the weeds with you know, however many cards there are nowadays, and you're sort of getting analysis, paralysis of you know, picking which card is gonna give you the slightest minute advantage over another one. So
3: true, and but even even look back at what happened with us last campaign. We we played the Forgotten Age after a bit. We hadn't played it for a bit, and we both made decks with a bunch of new cards and you know, older investigators, you played Jenny, I played Skids but with a bunch of new cards. And we went in with really, actually really good decks, I thought. And we went in so cocky. <laughs> we we actually, and to add to our cockiness, we destroyed the first scenario. Like, it was like we played with it. We played with the encounter deck. <laughs> we tempted it. And then the second scenario just kind of said, okay. <laughs> Hold my beer. (laughs) Hold my beer. (laughs) The
1: game has a funny way of doing that to you in a campaign.
3: Yep. And then it was like that. Like every... It was like one scenario we do well. One scenario we do horribly bad. Then the next scenario we did well. Then the next one we did horribly bad. It was just back and forth like that. So, you know, overall, even with the new cards, like it was still challenging. It was still really challenging. I had a great time. In fact, I, I feel like the cards... Added more fun because we had decks that had like really cool interactions and synergies, and I feel like we had more fun with these two investigators than if we would have played them with a more limited card pool. Mm,
1: yeah, especially with those older campaigns you've played through a bunch, like Forgotten Ages, our favorite, you know. So we've played it a ton. So it's it's fun to like have those little changes in in your deck to make the scenarios feel fresh again. And, and while we've been talking about power creep, you know, I, I was going through some of the older cards and hearkening back to cards like Key of Yeast and, you know, all these other ridiculous cards that they printed throughout the years. And, you know, I think if we're, we're collectively saying, OK, Key of Yeast is too powerful, you know, I, I think the designers have kind of found a good line of what is and isn't acceptable to, to create as a card. Barring Eon Chart level four.
3: <laughs> well, every every campaign has one. It does. It always you seems know, to be... Necronomicon. Yeah. Key of Yeast. Timeworn yeah. Brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Timeworn Brand isn't like universally touted as a broken card. It's certainly strong card, but no one's banning it at their table like they are with you know Double or Nothing. Or... <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's true, yeah. But yeah, I mean, case in point, right? There's been powerful cards since the game's inception. And I guess the last topic for the episode that I wanted to ask you guys about is kind of a revisiting of the taboo list. You know, Man from Lang and I, we talk about the taboo list quite a bit in our reviews, and I feel like you and I, Man from Lang, we sort of have developed a philosophy of ignoring the taboo list except for the parts I want to adhere to you know like I don't think machete should be on the taboo list so I put machete in my deck but I understand that you know pendant of the queen is a ridiculous card so I just don't play it
0: yeah that's that's pretty much where I've I've settled I the if something is added to the the taboo list it's almost soft band for me i i just won't play the card because i know it's it's pushed and it's too good and i'll usually end up playing it once and seeing how good it is and then yeah i just won't won't bother with it after that and i think the latest round the latest faq added a whole bunch of cards from Innsmouth, and i don't think i'll i'll probably ever play them
3: yeah i mean i'm glad the taboo list, taboo list exists i think it gives less experienced players kind of a starting point of like seeing a card and saying hmm why is this card on there and maybe giving it a second look and trying to figure out for themselves if if that's the type of thing they want in their games you know cuz sometimes it's hard if you're not like really in the community, in the discussions within the community, it's hard to really realize if a card is actually as busted as as it is, you know? But if you have a taboo list, then you're like, okay, well, clearly a lot of people think this one is. So let me see what exactly it is about it. And it could make you a better player, I think. At least a better strategic player, (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's a a good point you bring up, you know, because it sort of gives you, like, a frame of reference, if you will, right, for, like, what is and isn't a good Arkham card, and it was sort of something we had touched on in the beginning of the episode was, you know, do they design cards bad on purpose, and maybe they don't design them to be bad, but they certainly design them with a very niche circumstance in mind, and some cards have a much more broad brush, you know, used, so... Yeah, it's it's interesting to kind of look at the taboo list because I know a lot of people really adhere to it. You know, at least people that I've spoken to are they pretty much take it as gospel when they build their decks.
3: Sure, sure. We we have the with this game, we have the luxury of it not being a competitive. I was about game. to say so,
2: that's a hundred percent what I think. I, I guess my views on it are are similar. But I don't care about it at all. Like, I liked what you said. You, you consider it kind of a soft ban, and you don't necessarily use it. But, like, I play so casually. I can play the Key of Yeast and not really think I'm abusing it because I don't, I don't think I'd use it correctly. But uh, I recently joined somebody else's campaign, and I built it a beginning investigator like I always do. And I put in one machete. And they were like, nope, can't have it. Look at the ban list. And I was like, yeah, well, you can take it or leave it. It's not going to break the experience. And they were like, nope, can't have it. And I'm like, okay. I'll then put a knife in. Whatever, you know. <laughs> so it's like some people, some people are like all about it. And some people aren't. And I'm one of the people that aren't. But. When people are like, oh, well, don't worry, you don't have to follow. It's just a suggestion. No, some people will make you absolutely play by the ban list and make you update it and fact-check your list, but it's not a competitive format. And I've had the same experience with or without the ban list personally, but I'm not playing with a ton ton of people that like high-level magic players are absolutely trying to min-max the game and make it not
3: an experience and make it only about winning so i I guess I haven't seen that part of it. I 100 percent agree with you. I think a table banning it for everybody else, like if you as an individual player want to play a card, I don't see an issue with it, you know, but like you said, you're a casual player. So it there is a fine line, and I kind of get where the you know the two sides like you wanted to play that card, and that's cool. I'm okay with that if you're a casual player. But if you're man from Lang who adds an economic on and plays a seeker who's out damaging the guardian who is completely specialized in just packing a bunch of guns, in every scenario, the seeker's the one doing nine points of damage in one attack <laughs> and single single shot killing the boss of each scenario, then you know that's where that's where I think if you're overshadowing another player.
0: But see the the, the problem with that Vase is that I think when people adhere to the taboo list, I, you know, adhere to it or not, I, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, usually if I sit down at a multiplayer table and everybody's like, yeah, we're playing taboo list. I'm like, fine, you know, I'll play taboo list. The the issue I have with the taboo list is that I believe that Harvey Walters deck I played adhered to the taboo list and it was still
3: ridiculous. Uh,
0: yeah, it didn't matter. Okay, that's fair. The taboo list didn't matter. So if you're just arbitrarily taxing players and not fixing the problem, you're still going to have a bad play experience. Definitely a fair point. So so I adhered to the taboo list, and I still built a Harvey Walters deck that was was showing, like, poor Leo was like, Oh, I hit for one. Okay, well it's Harvey's turn. Just step aside while Harvey annihilates this creature in one turn.
3: Yeah, Harvey Del. We were in the we were in the final scenario in space, and Harvey was literally teleporting across eight locations or whatever, hitting something for like nine points of damage to save Carolyn, then teleporting back to help Leo because Leo was getting killed. Like it was insane. Har- Harvey's
2: <laughs> a professor, right? Yes. Yeah. professors have all the power it makes perfect and you know setup.
0: they and it that, was that deck followed the taboo list they, they could have tacked another 10 experience points on the necronomicon and if you play it it's still going to be broken it doesn't solve the issue adding experience points to cards doesn't solve the issue taking away experience points from the springfield doesn't make the springfield much better you know it's still a, a niche card that's you know pretty bad in most circumstances so i i i often wonder the people who are playing with the taboo list it's just like okay sure you're paying a little bit more experience points for these cards but they're still busted and you may not be able to play all of the busted stuff together but you're still able to play busted cards and you're still going to do well. I think the changes that need to be made is something like what they did with Sleight of Hand, where it's like, OK, you cannot play this with the Necronomicon. They changed Sleight of Hand to say on the taboo list to say you cannot play this with I think it's level three items like you you're stuck with level zero to two items. Now, that is an effective change but FFG doesn't like doing that because that forces players to remember too much
3: which is also fair it's it's kind of it's complicated it's complicated to get it balanced once that card is out there
0: but when i look at it it's like that is a fix that is how you fix a card you have to change it fundamentally you cannot just tack a couple of extra experience points on it and say done it's like, because there's nothing stopping players like from building a 40 XP deck, including the Necronomicon, the Pendant of the Queen, and all of those, and Aeon
3: Chart 4. There's nothing that stops them from doing that with the taboo list. It especially with the new campaign that gives XP like it's candy. Um, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you, Man from Lang. I think, initially, I thought what you were saying is pretty much... Taboo, fine, mutated was the issue. Because a mutated card is still... But now I hear you when you mentioned the other card that was mutated, an effective sleight of hand. Um, it, was effect, it was an effective mutation. So they just need to put a little more work and thought into the reasons a card is busted and fixing that and mutating those cards. I like the idea of mutated cards, but I wish there was a way to get a replacement card with the mutation printed on it. And I know that's kind of a lot to ask. I I get that they can't just have that for people.
0: I think they give you print and play option that you can download a print and play
3: version of it. Print and play. But I wish you could just buy the card from them. You know, I'd be willing to do that. I know a lot of people wouldn't be, but that's, I mean, it's, I think compared to other games, the solution of mutating a card is the best option. I wish FFG was more on top of it. But if you look at other games like Magic, my God, you know, can you imagine if you spent a $1,000 on a deck and then your deck becomes illegal because they banned it? Yeah, welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that is a problem. At least with our game, it's like... Okay, they mutated us some cards, you know what I mean? But it's not like...
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, because we're playing a cooperative game, it doesn't... It's not a, a huge deal. Like, And especially for a player like me who plays mostly solo by myself because I have no friends.
1: Hello, darkness, my old friend.
0: I can use the cards or not use them. I'm not hurting anybody. I know we were talking to Matt during the reviews, and... We were talking about Rex and and he had somebody at one of his tables play Rex unmutated and it was an absolute gong show because the Rex was just out of control and essentially ruined the game for everybody else at the table because he was just too, it was just too
3: much. Even co-op games like D&D, if someone's way too overpowered compared to everyone else, you, you overshadow everybody and then nobody has fun because they're just watching the one guy do, do it all.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it was necessarily Rex in that game. It was, it was Miley, it was unmutated. He was playing unmutated Miley, and that was just causing issues for everybody else at the table. And that's that's what the taboo list should be should be tackling. And I don't think tacking experience points on it does that, especially, you know, okay, maybe it did when Dunwich was around because Dunwich is notoriously stingy with XP. So adding a couple of XP to cards, suddenly it's like, oh, okay. well, maybe I can't afford afford the cards I want or at least all the all the good cards I'll have to pick and choose. But. You know, we've seen a lot of campaigns recently where it's just like, here's I think what is it, Dream Eaters because it's so short, they're like, here's eleven XP on the first scenario. Yeah. Uh-huh. Here's a here's another ten in the following scenario. It's just like, well, if you're just gonna give more XP, then what's the point of tacking on XP to these cards? Yeah,
3: you, you're not solving the problem. And, yeah.
0: And you're just and people are still can go ahead and play with the I mean, maybe it gives them a a false sense of security. It's just like, okay, I'm I'm playing with the pendant of the queen and the ne- Necronomicon, so I'm. But I have I've had to pay more for them, so I'm 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 fine with that. But they're still busted as written. So
1: you know, I I think Vase brought up a really good point, and I think this is the way I'm going to implement the taboo list moving forward. Is I'm basically just going to use it as a social contract. Where it's like, basically everyone at the table agrees that, you know, one player isn't going to do some absurd combo or some absurd deck where they outshine all of the other players at the table. Because, you know, it's a cooperative game and we're all here to feel special in our own way. all get our participation trophy.
2: (laughs) Everybody has to raise their hand and say, who feels special?
1: You I have to do feel special. Yeah, you know, I mean it it sucks, right? Like when you go and play a game and you know one person grabs all the clues, does all the damage and does all the things and then you just kind of
2: sit there at your turn. It's like the Alpha Pandemic problem, right? With Pandemic the board game where someone does everything.
1: Yeah, 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 totally, right? And then you kind of just sit there on your turn. Well, I guess I'll draw a card and gain a resource.
0: Move. Oh yeah, and I mean, when we played that that Circle Undone campaign, I, I legitimately felt bad for Big Stupid Grin by the end because I'm just like Harvey. Here's Leo, the monster killer, who's like, "Step aside, Leo. Harvey's here. I've got this book. Okay, I just did nine damage. <laughs> You're up, Leo. Well, I, I haven't drawn my flamethrower.
3: Okay, next. You know, I found Guardians like have that can have that issue. Some Guardians, because when I when I played. The um, gathering with my my brother, his wife, my wife, and myself a few years ago. We played on Easy, which was way too easy. <laughs> and um, she played Zoe. My wife played Zoe, and she was our guardian. And she literally did nothing all game because it was so easy to kill everything. <laughs> so sometimes the guardians just have nothing to do.
1: Yeah, Seekers can kind of be like that too. Man from Link had mentioned that Seekers and multiplayer kind of end up just being like Move investigate, investigate machines, and that can be kind of boring, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's that's my experience with them, is they tend to, unless they have some sort of sideshow that they can do. I find they often just that happened to me when I played the Forgotten Age, uh, Iron Man. It was like, I just was like, Ursula, move, investigate, investigate. If I drew an enemy, I'm like, you guys got that, yeah, okay, maybe evade. If necessary, but usually there was somebody who could take an action to pull an enemy off me, and just keep going. And yeah, it was it was pretty. It gets pretty, especially in an Iron Man setting where you're just playing so much over one day that can get pretty monotonous.
1: That's a that's like a totally different beast with Iron Man. Um, that's really a big reason why I like two player. Is that in, I feel like in two player, both players are sort of like you have to be self-reliant but at the same time you have somebody else there that can kind of get you out of those situations you wouldn't be able to by yourself so it's like a nice sweet spot and where you can like you could build your deck sort of the way you would want to without sort of that sort of solo tax, I would say, where you have to include enough ways to get clues and enough ways to beat enemies. But in two-player, you can build your deck to be more focused. But I think with that, let's move on to our community spotlight. Nathan, what do you have on the docket for us tonight?
2: So if... Marvel Champions ever adds an entire scenario driven campaign and you played Iron Man you'd be doing yourself
3: so I just wanted to put that okay so because uh, Iron Man <laughs> is one of them. I get it okay. I get it by the way Nate before you, before you speak Nathan Wow. Wait, next time you need wow. to get Nathan out Rude. of hiding because he hasn't spoken in a while Rude. all you have to do is say for the greater good for the greater good Oh, I see what you, you did go. there. Back. <laughs> Carolyn Fern, the bot. Vase has, to has another
0: opus to, to pen here.
2: Man, you are all on Vase. Poor Vase. I know.
0: I know. <laughs> it's been a Just while since I talked to Vase. Prep. I don't, I don't I talk to Vase all that often, so i got to get my digs in when I when I can.
3: Cause it's him, because they've replaced me. Him and Nate have replaced me with Metastrophic. <laughs> man from Lang says he has no friends uh it it reminds me of Aerosmith something that like I think it was Perry Stephen Perry I think is his name right the guitarist and he's like you know Aerosmith has been together like 40 some years right and someone asked him like oh yeah your friend uh Stephen Tyler he goes acquaintance (laughs) It's like, wait a minute, you've known the guy for 40 years. How the hell is he just an acquaintance? Yeah, they say He's that just... in
1: public, too. I've actually, I've met them. They just hate each other. It's it's really funny, because they're, they're actually, like, really chummy with each other otherwise.
3: <laughs> too much. Anyways, uh, sorry, Nathan. Yeah, side rail cover. much?
2: Jeez. So, yeah, Community Spotlight. Uh, I've got three things to cover. Uh, one thing is... Gary Walker uh, in the community, he uh, just sent me in the post from England. Uh, I believe it was Scandal in uh, in Whitechapel. So you play back in the late 1800s. You can play Sherlock Holmes and other characters. And, of course, I think Jack the Ripper is involved. I just got it in the mail today. Uh, I'm excited to try it off or try it out, and uh, I appreciate Gary both being part of the community and creating these cool experiences. He's also, I think, working on a a horror uh, set of well, like you point out, saying horror and Arkham is kind of redundant, but classic horror where you could do like Ash from Evil Dead, and there might be other. You know, very familiar characters. So I'm excited to try that as well. But anyway, I'll get get back to you on this one. It looks pretty sweet. Secondly, uh, on Etsy, I have teamed up with Buy Your Command. Uh, Tiff Allmendinger has a Etsy store and has uh, coordinated with Monty Gruber, uh, who is an artist and also has his own store, Creative anachronism, I believe. But uh, we are making achievement trackers. So basically, if it's an LCG that's cooperative, namely Lord of the Rings, uh, Marvel Champions, and Arkham Horror, you can now get an achievement board along with the tokens for, for example, let's take Arkham, every cycle, every standalone adventure. And when you complete that, you can slot those into the board. So that's kind of a neat little physical representation of all the toils and trouble you've done. Some people ask, should you do it if you beat it on easy? Should you do it if you beat on difficult? Totally up to you. Uh, But by the time this comes out, the achievement board for Arkham will be up. Right now, the one for Lord of the Rings and Marvel Champions are both up on there. So that's kind of exciting. Uh, And at some point, we'll do a giveaway so that we can hook somebody up with one of those. And then lastly, um, I've reached out to several people in the community, including this this very group, to do a a once-a-month scenario. Uh, I've talked to Maxine. I've talked to folks at, you know, Miskatonic University Radio, Mythos Busters, etc., And each month, we're going to have a new campaign or a new scenario to run. And all those people have to do is talk a little bit about their experience, Uh, you know, if they succeeded, maybe give some flavor, and we'll give out some prizes with that as well. So. That's what I got going on for Community Spotlight.
1: Very nice. Very nice indeed. I have been pestered by the beard face to play Alice in Wonderland and Cyclopean Foundations, so we're going to have to uh, jump on that at some point. Oh, yes. So I think with that, that's a, there's no trivia tonight, yes, because you're not feeling too well, Nathan, with your...
2: Uh, allergy attack coupled with a brand new job that is kicking my butt since it's all physical. I am uh, unfortunately not ready for trivia this time. So we'll
1: we'll have to make it up to our audience next episode with trivia, but I think that will do it for our episode. If you enjoyed it and you want to support the show, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash the great old ones gaming where we release episodes early for our patrons we also have a special discord channel in our discord server along with other goodies as well Uh, we tend to do holiday good giveaways and other things like that throughout the course of the year so if you want to support the show the link will be in the show notes but with that, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. I've been your host, Nate Lost in Time and Space, and I was joined with this evening.
0: I'm the man from Lang, host of the Whisper and Darkness YouTube channel. And I'm Innkeeper
2: Vase Odin from the
3: Twisted Tentacle Inn.
2: Hey, once again, this is Nathan with the Instagram Arkham Horror Images of Madness. Hopefully I'll get some new content up there as things calm down with the pandemic and I can get more people together. Thanks for listening.
3: Try this weird trick. Number 11 will blow your mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: God, we're doing BuzzFeed all of a sudden. Oh, geez, Write down
3: your
2: social security number. How wacky is that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't actually do that, please.